Hello and welcome aboard our podcast, Fighting Catholic Jetlag. My name is JC and I'll be your host. I'm a flight attendant and I'm on a journey to find my place within the Catholic Church. I'll be accompanied by my friend and co-host, Father Larry Hostetter, priest of 34 years and doctor of sacred theology. He's a Catholic University president and for our discussion, he'll serve as spiritual ground control to keep things on course for our flight back to faith. At times, we'll be navigating through difficult and uncomfortable issues, so prepare for a bit of turbulence along the way. There won't always be easy answers, but no subject will be off the table. If you're ready to explore your own doubts and questions and rediscover your faith with us, then sit back, buckle up, and enjoy our flight to faith. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to Fighting Catholic, Fighting Catholic Jet Lag. So before we jump into that, what's been going on? Your renovation is continuing. Yes. Um, we are priming walls now. Yes. We're close. Um, you've been away, haven't you? You've been I was in, in Washington, D.C. D.C. Um, and I always, you know, um, one of the cool things about travel is I like to always go on a pilgrimage somewhere and light a candle or something, some kind of significant Catholic something or another church uh-huh. or shrine. And when I was in Baltimore last year, the, the oldest cathedral yes. is there. Um, or it's the oldest diocese, I should say. I don't think it's the oldest cathedral right now. Um, and in D.C., of course, there's lots of things to mm-hmm. see. But I uh, usually try to go to the shrine of the Immaculate Conception, mm-hmm. which is on the campus of Catholic University of America and um, dedicated to Mary uh, dedicated to the Immaculate Conception because that's the title under which Mary is the patron of the United States. Oh. So every country has a patron. And Mary's United States. Yes. Do you know who England is? St. George. St. George, yeah. yeah. And Scotland? I don't know Scotland. St. No, that's Ireland. Think of the flag of Scotland. What's the flag of Scotland? The one that no one looks at. The, I don't know. It's white. With the Red Cross. No, that's England. St. George. That's St. George's flag. I thought the X. Oh, they have an X. The X, yeah. not a, yes. Yeah, the X, because that's St. Andrew's Cross. Yeah. They, oh, St. Andrew's, the college is there. Yeah, the yeah. So St. Andrew's Cross is in the form of an X, because he was crucified on a cross that was shaped like an X, oh. rather than one like a T. I did not know that. Yeah. And... Uh, and then the, the flag is the, the the cross of England, yeah, uh, which represents Saint George, and it's got the X of Scotland. Uh-huh. I don't know what Wales is. Wales is the dragon. I don't know how. Is it doesn't fit in, but I think their patron is Saint David. Yes, that sounds about right. Right, and, and then, then of Saint course Patrick Saint is... Patrick is is Northern Ireland too, because it's only yep. Northern Ireland, right? Mm-hmm. So also Saint Patrick. Yeah. Okay. So we have St. George slayed the dragon. Yeah. Yeah. So you may have more than one. I don't know. Yeah, um, I've only known of St. George. Yeah. St. George is the big one. Of course, he's kind of mythical and we're not even sure if he's exactly. actually real. Yeah. Because I mean, are dragons real? They might've been sometime. <laughs> but, uh, there's, I saw when I was in Washington, DC, I went to the national gallery of art and they had a magnificent Renaissance painting of St. George slaughtering the oh, dragon. Really? Yeah. How yeah. Here it is. St. George of England, St. Patrick of Northern Ireland, St. Andrew in Scotland, and St. David in Wales. Yeah. 
Those are the four patron saints of, of Great Britain. So who's Thomas Beckett? Why do I know his name? He's so? the one that stood up to Henry II, and Henry II said, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? And his knights went off and killed him at Canterbury. Okay. So they made a movie out history of it. History class. Yeah, I'm sure you did. Yeah. And um, it was a movie with Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole. Richard Burton played Beckett. Oh. That's a great, great movie. Have you ever see seen that. The Lion yeah. and Winter? No. Oh, gosh, you need to see The Lion and Winter. It's Lion um, Winter. Catherine Hepburn plays Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Peter O'Toole, in an older version, plays also plays, again, uh, Henry II. Okay. It's it's a lot of fun. Lots of really noteworthy lines in in that one. Interesting. What would you um, define as a pilgrimage then? So for me, a pilgrimage is just going to, I mean, a pilgrimage can be any number of things. It can be a long journey. It can be mm -hmm. a short journey. It can be a journey on foot, be a journey in car, boat, plane. It's just the act of traveling somewhere. So like I said, if I, I was on a business trip to Washington, D.C., so I was like, I took an afternoon off to go to the shrine, and I kind of kind of that as a pilgrimage. And so I like to go, and, you know, while there – I might light some candles if confessions are available. Maybe I'll go to confession. Um, and uh, the the wonderful thing about the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, we kind of got distracted there, didn't we, is it's dedicated to the Immaculate Conception, but to Mary in general. And the whole basilica, the shrine, is full of little chapels dedicated to different Marys from around the world. Really? So there's Our Lady of Czestochowa Chapel, which is Poland. Uh, uh, I found this one this last time. I didn't even know it was there. Um, Our, Our Lady of Marienzell, which is in Austria, oh. uh, which is one I always grew up with when I was a kid. Or I remember, uh, here's a picture of her. Um that's so cool. Yeah. So that's oh, the wow. chapel. And Look at like, that hat. this is, this one is, uh, <gasps> that's from the Philippines. I'm oh, showing, wow. I'm she showing her pictures of the, the different Marian statues. And this one's from India. Wow. And let's see. The Philippines dress is insanely yeah. beautiful. It's all gold. This is Marian This is stat this statue, is, which is a copy of the original one in Austria, goes back to the 10 hundreds. Wow. Is when this shrine was established. This is one of my favorite. This is Our Lady of Lavang uh, in Vietnam. And so you she looks, she has yes, Vietnamese she features, and the baby Jesus has Vietnamese and Asian features and the clothing. Um, I love that. And so it's um, pretty cool. It's Our Lady of Guadalupe. Every, every country that has a Mary. Like England, it's Our Lady of Walsingham. I was going to ask what's ours. Yeah, because I didn't know that. Yeah, it's it was a pretty famous shrine after <laughs> the um, Reformation. It was suppressed somewhat, uh -huh. but I think it's still there. Um, wow. So next time you go to home, to you'll have to uh, you'll have pilgrimage. to see make a pilgrimage. Uh, let's see where Wals Wals Our Lady of Walsingham sounds like Midlands or in the south. Doesn't sound like a normal. It was a common uh, pilgrimage, as is the shrine of Thomas Beckett. You know, um, the Canterbury Tales yes. is the story of them going to 
pray at the tomb of Thomas Beckett. Oh, maybe that's where I've heard his name as yeah. well. He does sound very So familiar. it was a pious, uh, in the village of Walsingham, in 1061 it was started in Norfolk, England. Um, she, she, Mary is depicted as wearing a Saxon crown. Um, so I guess they wanted to stick it to the Normans by making <laughs> her be Saxon. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The image that they currently have was carved in Oberammergau, Germany. So I don't think that's the original uh, image because the shrine was destroyed during Henry VIII uh, in course. 1538. Um, it had been one of the greatest religious centers in England and Europe, uh, together with Glastonbury. Glastonbury, is that how you say it? Or is it one of those weird? No, okay, because right. sometimes have... you say things you it's spelled like that, and it's like <laughs> blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, um, Glastonbury. I know that well from the um, Glastonbury Music Festival. They have a huge music festival every year. There. The one that gets me when your pronunciation is Maudlin. Maudlin. Maudlin College. Isn't that how it's pronounced? If it's spelled Madeline, we would say Madeline. Oh. And they make there's a difference Maudlin. between Magdalene and. Maudlin, and there's oh. a Magdalen College and a Maudlin College, and those in the know, Interesting. the hoity-toities, I guess, yeah. make a big deal out of how it's pronounced. Which one's it's pronounced? You've not, you've not encountered that. I've not. No. So anyway, this all kind of ties in with what we're going to talk about today, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. So last week we talked about chapel veils. Mm -hmm. Basically came to the conclusion, if you want to wear one, fine. If you don't, don't. Don't yeah. shame anybody who is or who isn't. Um, and we gave a little bit of the history of it and talked about why somebody might want to or might not want to. Mm -hmm. um, the We had a little conversation or a little side uh, note about the Latin mass yes. and that it was required for women to cover their head back in the days when the Latin mass or the Tridentine mass was mm -hmm. the popular mass. This mass is the cause for a lot of heartburn, not heartburn, jet lag. We should change our name to Catholic, to Catholic heartburn, fighting Catholic heartburn, uh, uh, Catholic jet lag for a lot of Catholics. Okay. And it is one of the disputed things is about which mass should one attend or not attend. And since there are options, does it make a difference? And is one better than the other? So I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about that. Are you, how familiar are you with the traditional Latin mass? Or? I've never been to one. I know it's all in Latin, apart from the homily. And that's probably about it. Yeah. Um, do they have them in town? Not here in Owensboro. I understand there's one in Evan there used to be one in Evansville. I don't know if there still is, given that Pope Francis has changed the rules on that a little bit. Oh. A little bit. So, so what are the rules that have changed? Well, he it made it less accessible and restricted its use after Benedict had expanded mm -hmm. its use. Um so I, I think we can talk a little bit about that and yeah. jump in and ask questions. I like that. So those of you who are Catholic, old enough, you might remember uh, Mass before 1962. Um, and actually, um, even a few years after that, you might remember Mass being always in Latin. Everywhere. Every, all over the world. So it didn't matter where you went, you would walk in and 
the responses and everything would, would be the same. If it was a Roman rite or Latin rite church. Now, if you were at a Greek rite church, mm-hmm. we've talked about that in, pa- in previous so that's podcasts. not under the Vatican. It is, but they have the right to have their own language. So if you were in oh. Greece or in, in Ukraine, where they might have the Byzantine rite, um, and it was... Um, it, it was still affiliated with Rome, but but still kept their own rituals. You might have it in a different language, or you might have it in in Greek. Huh. Um, why? Sorry, why did those places have their acceptance? Why is it just? Well, because they came from a different culture. So in in around the one thousand, the, the two churches split: Eastern mm-hmm. Rite or the Eastern Orthodox and the Latin Rite Catholics or okay. Roman Catholic Church split. Then a few centuries later, some of the Eastern Orthodox returned to Rome to recognize the Pope as the Vicar of Christ. Oh. When they returned, they did not have to give up their rituals. They got to keep their own uh, cultural expression of okay. the Eucharist. So, and that included the language. The original mass was probably in Greek, was in Greek, if not in Aramaic when it was, you know, so, but it was in Greek because it was the common language of the Mediterranean world. As it spread into the Roman Empire, um, it, the mass switched over to the vulgar language of the time. And vulgar is the traditional meaning of the word vulgar, which is not bad, bad, just means common. Oh. Yeah. The original meaning of vulgar is just common. So, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Latin Bible is called the Vulgate. Oh. Because it had been translated from Greek into Latin, which was the common language of the people. So they called it the Vulgate, which is the same derivation of the word vulgar, which just means common. So the vulgar language, uh, you know, if your mom says, stop using that vulgar language, right. she isn't telling you to quit cussing, which is what how she we interpret stop today. Stop speaking Latin. <laughs> it, it, stop, it stop being using the common language. So the vulgar language of today is English. Uh-huh. Uh, in, in the United States would be English. That's what we, we speak every day. So it's the common language of the day. So it went from the vulgar language of Greek to the vulgar language of Latin, which were the common languages that everybody spoke. So for some people to argue that you shouldn't have used the language that you understand, uh-huh. it misses the whole point that the mass used to, was translated into Latin because that's what everybody spoke. Okay. So that was just the, so it was the language, it was a, the language of the time that's what everyone spoke so then that's right. when they went to mass obviously then as it spread yeah as and then as it spread and spread into other countries into germanic countries where they spoke a different language they they kept the latin in the mass to distinguish you know and it became kind of a holy language then yeah. so latin became the mass of scholarship Scholars spoke language, they spoke mm-hmm. Latin, then, then clerics spoke Latin. It was also the language of diplomacy until French took it over many centuries later because oh. it was the language that 
you everybody learned. So now you had German speakers, multiple dialects, Italian speakers, French speakers, Spanish speakers, you know, Anglo-Saxons had their own language. Um, and so you had to find a way for people to be able to communicate. So everybody that needed to communicate you know, on an international basis would use Latin. Um, but then nowadays that's probably English, isn't it? It's probably English. You know, for for the longest time it was French. Okay. French was the language of diplomacy. Um, and so all diplomats would have to speak, would have to know enough uh, French. But I'm suspect it's, it's English. You know, pilots, when they're flying from country to country, they all use English okay. uh, to make sure that everybody's on the same page. So you have to be able to speak English well if you're going huh. to be an international pilot. Nice. Um, so that Latin eventually became enshrined. And over time, let's say the first 1,500 years of the church, um, mass was primarily in Latin, but it was also uh, very rich in diversity. So it might be celebrated a little bit differently in Germany than it would be in England or in Sweden because everybody would kind of give it its own little flavor. There wouldn't be a lot of major changes, mm -hmm. but certain distinctive rituals or rites, as we call them, would, would have emerged in that time. Oh. Then in, in, in response to the Protestant Reformation mm -hmm. in the 1500s, uh, you had the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent was trying to say, was trying to figure out a way to respond to what Martin Luther had done in the early 1500s and had grown throughout Northern Europe mm -hmm. and to say, okay, as Catholics, we need to be a little bit more uniform because we've got to stand up against this, yeah. what was perceived to be an attack and was in many ways an attack. So in 1570, the mass of Paul V was established and it was called many people called it the tridentine mass or the tridentine mass i've heard of that have you heard of that expression yeah and i bet you've heard it in england because it's very popular in england maybe i may have heard it in rcia as well you might have heard it then as well i feel yeah. like i've heard it recently mm -hmm. but it seemed familiar yeah so one of the things they did was they made mass uniform because by 1570 now You've got people traveling around the world, you know, and so travel it is a lot easier. Uh, the publication of books is a lot easier because you now have a printing press. So being uniform became more easy. And so the, the Catholic Church said from now on, everybody has to, with a few exceptions, everybody has to use the same mass. And we're going to call it the Mass of Paul V, the Mass of the Tridentine Mass. Mm -hmm. um, there were some exceptions. Like the, the Ambrosian Mass, which was a mass that was said specifically in uh, Milan, Italy, after the rite of St. Ambrose, who was their ancient predecessor as a bishop, got to stick around. And that's said to this day. The Dominicans, I think, had their own ritual. I think the Carthusians had ritual. So some of the very ancient rituals mm -hmm. they got to keep. But in general, now everybody had to say the same mass. The church said everybody has to get, if you're going to be a priest, everybody has to have the same education. So they uh, formalized education for everybody. Okay. Um, and basically everybody learned the same thing, um, creating a uniformity because part of Martin Luther's 
uh, complaint was that some superstition has had entered into the Catholic Church. And so one way of combating that was by making sure everybody was properly educated, including including the priests. That's so, where the hocus pocus comes from. That's right. That's right. That's when they said that. And so it stayed that way uh, until 1962. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like I could, That's so recent to... Have it all in. Yeah, it was a year after I was born. Yeah, like that's it's pretty recent, really. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm surprised that it was that long that Latin right. was went on. And now I've never, like I say, I've never been to one now, but I'd be intrigued to go to one. It's it's an interesting thing. I'll talk about my experience here in a minute because I, I think um, it'll be just my experience. Uh -huh. I, I won't make a judgment other than this is a judgment <laughs> of my experience. Well, in the 1960s, what happened? Early 1960s. Um. Give me the look that JC used to give me look when I would ask her <laughs> questions. <laughs> Eyes get wide. Was it <laughs> flight the or fight? <laughs> women. Vatican II. Over. <laughs> yeah. So Vatican II, which is a council just like the Council of Trent, where the, the Tridentine Mass came from. Okay. So um, there had only been one other grand council, worldwide council, in between Trent and Vatican II, and that was Vatican I. Okay. in the mid-1800s. So Vatican II was started in the early 60s, and one of the things they wanted to do was to modernize the church, to get back to our roots, you know. To modernize. Modernize, open the windows. Okay. You know, oh, okay. Um, let in some fresh air. Uh, some people think, you know, it was a little too wide open, everything flew out. <laughs> um, but one of the things they wanted to do was to look at the liturgy. Mm -hmm. Now, what some people don't understand is there were already reform efforts underway of the liturgy for decades before the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council just took it one further step. So in the early 1900s, Pius X uh, made it possible for more frequent communion. Because before that, you might only get communion once a year. What? Yeah. Because you weren't supposed to go to communion very often. That's really what the, was, the Mass wasn't about. So that was already a reform effort in the early 1900s by Pius X. Wow. And he lowered the age for First Communion, which used to be, you know, 12 years old to seven. the age of reason, seven. Mm. Uh, Paul, uh, Pius Twelfth initiated some reforms, especially around the Easter Vigil, when you were, uh -huh. were, were baptized. He reintroduced a, the Vigil and actually even introduced what they called the Dialogue Mass, you know, where, where there was a back and forth <gasps> yes. between the people and the priest, all in Latin, though. Those reform efforts were already underway and under the direction of some brilliant mm -hmm. liturgists that were moving we're saying, you know, this old mass may not be what modern people want mm -hmm. um, or need. So the council said the established some things in the sacred liturgy. You know, reminded everybody that Latin is still preeminent. Uh, Gregorian chant should still be used when possible, but in doing that, also opened the door for further developments, which is what we have today. Like and so the mass of what we call the mass of Paul VI mm -hmm. was developed, which is basically the mass that we celebrate 
today. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it is, when you look at, if you ever go to the, the Latin mass, the, the traditional Latin mass, you'll see that it's much less complicated. Uh, of course, everything is in the la language of the people, although you can still use Latin. Mm -hmm. uh, there's nothing restricting you from using Latin. And uh, there's much more engagement by the congregation. And one of the most obvious things that people notice is the altar is turned around, the priest is facing the people, whereas in the traditional Latin mass, everybody's facing in the same direction. Wow. The ideal was that everybody's facing the same direction east. I mean, it was the ideal was to build a church to where everybody was facing east in anticipation of the coming of, the, of Christ again. Wow. You know, so it's everybody's facing in the same direction. And so this now became more of Christ is in the middle uh -huh. and the priest and the people are gathered around. Like he's everyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that became the mass and the other, the traditional Latin mass was then suppressed. And is that when the rail went as well? It Not for a while, okay. uh, but yes, eventually the communion rail would disappear in most churches. People would receive in the hand. Um, you know, none of that was part of, of it originally, and that took some time to develop. Um, you know, like even then, you still only had boys who served as servers. That is something that changed only in the last 20 years. Um, and there were continues to be changes throughout the 1970s. Um, if it was very difficult to get permission at that time to say, the traditional Latin mass, older priests who would have a hard time transitioning, um, they were, were often given permission to continue saying the old mass, you know, they were going to die out at some point. <laughs> yeah. um, so most people didn't have that experience. Mm -hmm. uh, there were breakaway groups who okay. broke away from Rome and continued to say that. That was actually my first experience as a young man at a church. I think it was St. Gertrude the Great in Cincinnati. We all went over to see what it was like. Um, so is this like, it's, are they still Catholic? Can you, they still They would Catholic? still be Catholic. Okay. And at this point, the church was still, they, they were part of a group, and I'm trying to remember their name, but they were often called Lefebvreites oh. because Archbishop, uh, Lefebvre, who was a French bishop, is was kind of their leader, and um, they he they were still in kind of dialogue with the church and trying to figure out a way to reconcile. Um, but they were officially in not officially in schism, but they were a, kind of a breakaway group. It wasn't until 1980, I think it was 1988. I wrote that down. Um, that let's see what it's that cool notebook that you've got yeah this is this is one of those um uh an electronic electronic one. ink pads yeah, and then do you can it save or do you take it, it saves it? to this it also saves to the cloud what and i can also sync it with dropbox or uh one one drive how cool is that yeah yeah and it's this particular one we got off topic I'm yeah. talking about my electronic <laughs> notebook now. Is uh, called Remarkable, it and there are remarkable. other ones. There's other one called Supernote and Books, and they also do some of the same things. This one is is just doesn't do anything but take notes. Wow! So there's no. What I like about it is 
nothing pops up and tells me I have yeah. a message or email. I can just concentrate on note taking and putting thoughts on paper or in this case, electronic paper. That's fantastic. But I think it was in 1988 that A. Lefebvre had decided, and this was the first time he did it, he was going to ordain some bishops oh. without permission from Rome. So as long as he didn't ordain bishops, he was ordaining priests, but he never ordained another bishop. He was never technically in completely separated from Rome. He wanted to be Pope, didn't he? But eventually that was kind of, you know, I think maybe, That's I don't know. That's what it was. <laughs> um, so that led to some problems, but eventually they created, and I can't remember what year this was, some uh, groups to form who could celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, the Mass mm -hmm. of 1962. Okay. And I think it was called the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. They were not in schism. They accepted the Pope as head of the church. Okay. And as a way of trying to keep them in, the Pope gave them permission, Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, gave them permission to continue to use the Mass of 1962. And that's pretty much where it was limited. <laughs> you could go there. And, and celebrate Mass with them. But um, you, you, that was not supposed to be your ordinary way of celebrating Mass. So the next thing that happened was in uh, was Benedict XVI, again, as an attempt to try to bring more people in and listening to people who wanted to return to the traditional Latin Mass. Mm -hmm. In 2007, he issued what is called a motu proprio, motu proprio, which is a act, official act of the Pope that he's doing on his own. And it was called Sumorum Pontificium, uh, the Supreme Pontiff. Um, and he, with that document, uh, basically allowed, made the distinction between what's called the ordinary form of the Mass, which mm -hmm. is the one we go to every Sunday or every day, and the extraordinary form of the Mass. And the extraordinary form was the 1962 Missal, the book out of which the prayers were oh. said, giving priests pretty much permission, any priest permission, to celebrate that Mass, and any group of people to petition the bishop and to say, we would like this Mass to be celebrated in and we have, feel like we have enough people. Eventually, wow. permission was extended to where anybody could do it at any time they wanted to, didn't need any kind of special permission at all. But the one you went to was the off-brand Catholic. No, well, in, in, in the <laughs> early 80s, yes. And I've since gone to one in Houston, which was the parish in in that diocese that was, was where they celebrated that Mass. So often what will happen in larger places um, – that have a large populations would often designate one parish okay. as the place where you could, that that this is where you go for that. Mm -hmm. Although uh, Benedict eventually gave permission for anybody to say it anytime they wanted to. Um, but, you know, you were supposed to be prudent about that because it is a very, very different mass. Have you ever had a Latin mass at Brescia? We have not. I have said Mass. I have said the Paul VI Mass in Latin at the request of students. Really? So it's the Mass that we normally celebrate on Sunday 
in Latin. Like they wanted Latin. to see what it was like to hear that in Latin. But it, you, know, you do your responses, you do everything, you know, that you normally do, except you use in, in Latin. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you have to know Latin to respond. You have to know Latin or you have to have it written down, you know, to, to respond. So um, anyway, the problem with all of this was it created a split in the church. Yeah. And there were some people who felt like the, and said so publicly, that the Latin mass, mass was superior to the ordinary form. Oh. And and that was often the you know the attitude you would get. Yeah, you, you're fine with your mass, it's valid and everything, but I'm gonna go to the, the really good one, yeah. which is the Latin mass. And so it it was creating confusion in, in the minds of a lot of people. Well, what's going on here with all these different types of masses? Yeah. And so Pope Francis reined it in and made a lot of people mad. And that was just recently in um in 2021, uh, he, let's see, I wrote some notes down. He issued his own motto proprio, <laughs> Traditiones Costudes, in which he's, he uh, basically restricted its use. Um, and then in 2022, he went one step further and he said, this mass is really not the way forward. Wow. We need to do a better job with the mass we have and let this mass basically move us forward. You know, not that one die out. Yeah. And that was, I think, the idea originally that that was that that Latin mass would eventually die out. But right, Latin there, did. Yeah. But there was a whole movement of people who were saying, no, no, this is eventually what will happen is enough people will go to the Latin mass and demand that it be returned, that it's going to be what, what will be the the mass and the extraordinary, the ordinary form is going to go into the dustbin of history. Mm -hmm. um, the, Francis basically said, okay, enough of this. Not just anybody can do this. You have to have special permission from the bishop and the bishop is only supposed to give it in for the most serious of reasons. Uh, for a while there, I think they were even teaching it in seminary so that everybody in seminary would learn how to do it. I think that was stopped by Pope Francis. And a lot of people were very upset about that. Now, a lot of bishops were like saying, okay, this community can still continue to, you know, the, we still have a place mm -hmm. for this. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I think it's kind of like chapel veils. Yeah. That's what people want to do. And it means something to them as part of their spirituality. Then we're going to provide for that. But just to make it wide open for anybody where you never know when you go to church, what you're going to be going into mm -hmm. might be a little confusing to people. And people, yeah. I think, like a, a lot of older people were like, why would you go back to that? We didn't understand a thing that was going on. Yeah. But younger people were like, well, hi, wait a minute. This is interesting and different yeah. and countercultural. And we're getting something out, especially families that wanted to maintain traditional families. So you will go... To, and I'll, I'll share my experience living in Houston. I went to it because it was the, the mass I had to get to. Mm -hmm. And there were families, but it was very much father, wife in Chapel Vale, and then kids. Lots of them. Not necessarily lots of them, but, you know, three or four or five kids, yeah. which I guess is lots nowadays. Yeah. It's not like the old days when you had like 12, 12 or 14. <laughs> um, and, 
you know, they all had their missiles. It was very, very devout. Everybody was praying along. Um, but it felt strange to me. And it, it, I had mixed feelings. On the one hand, it was um, very transcendent and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the music was beautiful. You know, it's usually an old church, so the, I love old churches. Yeah, the architecture is beautiful. I, the idea of everybody facing in the same direction, there's something about that. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, the liturgy, I think one of the roles of the priest is to break open the world mm-hmm. so that we see beyond our own reality. I think the mass should be a place where you enter into and it's like, oh, there is more. Yeah, There is more than just what I'm going through every day. Mm-hmm. There, there's something magnificent. And, and the new mass kind of calls us to see that in each other in addition to the Eucharist and in the prayers. Um, but sometimes I think it gets lost. Yeah. That, that breaking open of the world to see something more deeper, to see the transcendent, to see the beauty and majesty of God. It, it Sometimes, depending on how things are done, it's it's harder to see. Um, in, the, in the Latin mass, the traditional Latin mass, I saw that, but I think if I had to do it every day or every week, I would forget that I'm supposed to see it in you yeah, and in the people that are around me and not just in the architecture and in the music. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it felt like I was a time traveler <laughs> and I was out of place. Okay. Because for me, the liturgy should reflect the culture of the day. Yeah. And it was reflecting the culture of 1570. Wow. You know, so you had the priest way up there. Yeah. And he was way up on top, the top step. Oh. And he was being waited on by all these servers. Um, and then you had, you know, it was very hierarchical. It mm-hmm. was it was clearly created in a time before democracy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or an understanding of the equality that all human beings share with each other. Uh So there are certain values that that mass communicated to me that I think were antithetical to the values that we hold dear, the values of equality, um, that nobody is morally superior, uh, nobody is ontologically or metaphysically superior we all have different roles in the church mm-hmm. but nobody is better than yeah. anybody else as humans we're equal right yeah. which today's mass mm-hmm. kind of communicates yeah. that so i think they both communicate something um but what it reminded me was that maybe we need to do a better job with the mass we celebrate every week mm-hmm. of you know maybe adding a little bit of a reverence what we talked about last week, you yeah. know, the veil kind of added a sense of, you know, concentration uh-huh. um, and, uh, you know, re- a reminder that going to Mass isn't just a free-for-all, that we're entering into God's very presence. Yeah. Um, but we do so as beloved by God, you know, and that felt kind of like 
we were all, you know, kneeling before God's throne, waiting to be struck down. And this was much more, for me, the mass today is much more, we're all in God's presence. Uh -huh. Sometimes we kneel, sometimes we stand in God's presence, but we're in God's presence and God is filling the room, the chapel, the church with God's presence and it's a presence of love. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that sense with the traditional Latin mass, but I did get a sense of the, the transcendence, the majesty, the awesomeness of God. I did get that. And it's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but also that hierarchy, I think, is it doesn't square with no. where we are today. Exactly. I think, like, I love all of the bells and smells, they say, um, of those more grand masses that we have, like with the incense and um, just little things that are different on those big occasions easter christmas and mm -hmm. so and that i love that it because it kind of it adds that other sense in there like mm -hmm. you you're not only hearing it you're seeing it and then now you're smelling it it's everything but it's um interesting i saw um have you, you know the actor shia labeouf uh-huh so he's now big into the latin mass isn't he yes he did a movie on uh pio Oh, yeah, he plays Padre Pio, doesn't Padre he? Padre Pio, yes. And he wasn't Catholic before he was given that role. And then he went away to live with monks and really embrace the role that he's going to be playing, learn the ways, like, know exactly, put himself in that mindset. Mm -hmm. And that converted him. Mm -hmm. That con Like, he had this huge – there's a really cool YouTube video. Um, it's like – it's probably about an hour and a half long and he's interviewing with a priest and he's talking about all of this. And one of the things that he said, which really made me want to try Latin mass was the fact that he said, if you take, like, obviously you can't hear what's going on. You don't understand it. But he said, if you take one of your senses away, it heightens the others. Mm -hmm. And he said, he just felt way more connection during that latter mass because he couldn't know he mm -hmm. didn't know what was going on which i thought was quite interesting right because i listen to foreign music a lot when i'm trying to concentrate when i'm trying to work or exercise or right. something i listen to french um german spanish music because i don't quite understand it and i'm not going to get distracted by the words and i can just like the beat just keeps me going or something like that so I, I was intrigued when he said, "Kind of like that. opera, going to the opera. You yes. don't understand what they're singing, no. you know, but you understand there's the emotion that's uh -huh. being communicated. You know, some people have said that the the Paul the Sixth Mass was too much of a rupture from the traditional Latin Mass, okay. and that that maybe they should have done more of a hybrid, yeah, between the two, and that would have. But you know, that's it's it's a rupture that's." If, if it is a rupture, I mean, it's been, what, 40, 60 years now, yeah. you know, um, more than 60 years. And so uh, it it it's how we are now. And so it's hard to kind of go back. But that's not to say that we can't do things that might touch on that. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think we talk too much mm. at mass. It's like, I just don't want to talk. Yeah. I just want to experience and but it, it really depends on what people like sometimes but yeah. the, the whole idea of the paul the sixth mass was to go back to the most ancient roots 
mm-hmm. and and to try to remind us, you know, to go back pre-Tridentine times and even before that to the earliest day of the church and say, how would they have celebrated Mass then? And they would have gathered around a table, around an altar, much as we do today. Yeah. But think of what what was the first Mass then? Around a table. And, and if you want to do it like the, the first, first Mass, mass the, last supper, the Last Supper, and they would have been reclining at table. And that would not have been in Latin. No, that would have been in Aramaic in all likelihood. Yeah. Yeah. So then if they really want to go back to the roots, right. yeah, yeah. it should be Yeah, that. so sometimes uh, that's the problem, I think, is that people are so tied to that Latin Mass mm-hmm. that they think it's the only true way to, to even if they admit that the yeah. other one might be valid, which some people don't think that the Paul VI Mass is valid. Really? Yeah, yeah, those are the hardcore. Wow. They're usually broken away from Rome. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the jet, Catholic jet lag, you know, uh-huh. is that some of these divisions, you know, and there's some people who don't think there's been a pope since John the 23rd <laughs> in 1961, you know. So, uh, because you obviously can't have all these changes and be legit. So, it, it all of that in my mind is it's a denial that changes happen in history all the time. But they wanted to go back to the way it used to be. So a lot of the words that we use and things like that are part of the evolution of the mass, but also returning to the original mass. And so people thought that Benedict XVI was trying to find a way of reintegrating the mass with the, the current mass with the Latin mass. And so you look at images of Benedict when he was Pope, uh-huh. He brought back a lot of the old vestments. Yeah. You know, that, like that kind of stuff. And, but he never said the traditional Latin Mass is Pope. He never said never, it? No. Wow. Not, not publicly, anyway. Benedict. Benedict. Wow. Yeah. But he brought back a lot of the accoutrement yes. of, of the papacy, then that Francis was like, uh, no. Tone it down. Tone it down. <laughs> As in the two popes, he said, uh, the clown show is over, <laughs> which was pretty cruel. I don't know if he actually said that, but that's what they said in the movie. Yeah. Or the circus. Was it the circus is the over? circus is over. <clears> or <throat> the carnival or something. Yes. So um, that's, that's where we're at. I need to try it. You say well, you can... travel a lot. Yeah. And, you know, actually the Tridentine Mass in England, if you're ever back home, you will probably find it more frequently because even in the days when it was not allowed, uh-huh. England had uh, more permission to use it because of the history of the English martyrs. So the argument was the English martyrs died for that mass because that's oh. the mass they would have died under. Oh, wow. You know, that was the mass of that uh, Henry VIII and well, Elizabeth I actually more so uh-huh. was trying to suppress. And so that was the mass they were celebrating when they were often captured and, you know, hanged, drawn, and quartered. Um, and then definitely under James, is it James the First? Was that her? Yeah, it was James the First. first yeah. yeah. He wrote the King James Bible. Yeah. Um, you know, there were, oh, was yeah. lot, there were lots of persecution of Catholics at that time in England. Um, and so those are the martyrs of England, the Catholic martyrs of England. And Popes gave permission to English priests and bishops because it had such a uh, deep connection to the tradition of martyrdom in England. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. If you go to the Venerable College, English College in Uh in Rome, 
which is where Catholic priests were trained. Uh, and they would go to Rome to be trained at the Venerable College. The reason it's called the Venerable College is it has so many saints attached to it. Oh. Um, because they at that time, they would go to Rome to get, study back to England where they knew they would probably die. So they the, just the survival rate back. was not good wow. in, during certain times. Of, and so I think it's in their refectory, in their cafeteria, they have the images of all of the the saints of that were there as seminarians and then went back to England and died. And so it's supposed to be inspiring to the current group of... To just keep going. Keep going, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a pretty neat place there. In, that in, is uh, cool. Yeah. We still need to do our Rome trip. Yep. We do. We need to do a fighting Catholic jet lag pilgrimage <sighs> we do. to Rome. That would be amazing. If y'all are interested in that, send us a note. Yes. At, we don't Catholic jet lag at gmail.com. Okay. And we also have our Instagram, Fighting Catholic Jet Lag Podcast. Yeah. So anything else? I don't think so. I think we should pray for the people of Turkey and Syria today. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's it. That's pretty horrible. It's like up to 17,000 people yeah, more every Remember when it was just 2,000 two days ago? Yes. And then I saw something yesterday where it was like 7,000. And then obviously it's... Yeah, it's up. Uh, 17 was the last I heard. Yeah. 17,000. So. Oh, my gosh. It's devastating. And those buildings are just like... Have you seen the videos? It's like dust. They just, like they just fall over. Yeah. I mean, solid-looking buildings just toppling over. But then I saw some, um, like, aerial photos of, like, before and after... And it's some. It's just like so flat. Like, where did it all go? Yeah, yeah. It's awful. We definitely need to pray for those people. Do you want to do the prayer? I'll let you do it. Oh, you want me to do it again? <laughs> all right. Let's pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm. Lord, thank you again for this time together with our friends at Fighting Catholic Jet Lag. But we really want to remember all those affected by the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. We pray for those. Who, who died, may they rest in peace. For the survivors, for the injured, may they heal. For the survivors, may they also heal of the trauma of experiencing this. And we especially pray for those who lost family members and children who are now orphans, and we commend them to you. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. This podcast is ended. Go and love as you have been called to love. And God save the king. God save the king. <laughs> <laughs> God bless.